This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast is brought to you by Renthal Street Components. Over 800 street fitments for handbars, bar mounts, clip-ons, brake pads, chains, and sprockets. Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast brought to you by Renthal Street. Check out renthal.com for chains, sprockets, and lots of other parts for your motorcycle. On today's Paddock Pass podcast, we've got a special edition podcast it's not just myself steve english and gordon ritchie on the pod we're also joined by evo Schutzbeck and alex raby so we've got lots of experts on the pod this weekend evo for you 20 years in the world superbike paddock now with speed week it is it wasn't only for speed week before it was also for another magazine but since 2008 it's for speed week and i mean i need to see you every week so it's a lovely job <laughs> it's it's not every week unfortunately we don't get paid that much but uh but uh evo obviously it's great to have you on the podcast you're one of the journalists that's as respected as anyone in motorsport so it's it's great to have you on the pod and gordo obviously you've had a great relationship with evo over the years i think it's fair to say not a, not everyone in the paddock has had that though evo you know you've uh never been afraid to ask the tough questions write the tough articles and uh get to the nub of a story yeah, but I'm very charming, so most people love me. Is he charming, Gordon? He's very charming when he wants to be. <laughs> no, he, I'll tell you what Evo is like. Evo is very hard-nosed. He's very hard. He's very fair. That's the most important thing. If Evo wrote something that he thought was wrong, he would be very upset. He does his work. He gets it right. And sometimes that upsets people because he's got it. He's exposed someone that someone wants to keep. That's what we all do. Everybody's got their style. And Evo's is straight ahead. That's it. It's always one of those things in the paddock for us. One of the exciting things is over a weekend to be able to sit in the media center, just chew the fat about what we've been able to find out, what someone else knows. And that's what makes this podcast quite interesting this weekend because we've also got Alex Raby on the pod. And uh, Alex is my teammate in the commentary box. And uh, Al, you're making your podcast debut today. Yeah, thanks very much for having me, uh, Steve. Uh, year five for me in the Superbike World Championship, so I'm overshadowed by the Goliaths in this uh, in this room. Um, but but great to be with you. All. Yeah, and uh, obviously this pod because we've got some new voices for it. It's actually quite good to be able to use this as a podcast just to talk about the Superbike World Championship in general terms. And Gordo, we'll kick it off straight away with you about this season. We're going to see. We're recording this in Hereth. We're going to see Alvaro Bautista confirmed as a two-time world champion this weekend. What's been the difference between him and the rest of the field for you this year? Uh, ultimately, lots of things, but the major things is a bike that works uh, well everywhere now, that he and only he can take to the limits, and those limits are higher than the other machines in this championship are as, as it stands. The performance of the Ducati is, is very strong, um, and other manufacturers, even with people like Top Rack, Razgat Leoglu and Jonathan Ray on their bikes, can't quite compete. They kind of can. Obviously, Top Rack and Yamaha has worked quite well this year and it's gone to the last round, which is actually the most surprising thing about this year, I think, in the, quite how dominant that Alvaro's been, as it were, actually have gone to the last round. Um, but don't let that kid you. Quite clearly, that is the package this year. And it's the package of Ducati's the best bike at the minute. Uh, and they've got a rider who can make the most of it. Evo, what about you? When you look at Bautista this year compared to the last few years and Ducati in general? It's really what, what Gordon is saying. It's, it's the package. Because when people are saying that it's only the Ducati bike, then um, we should see 
uh, first, second, third place in every race Ducati riders. But most of the days, the next Ducati rider is only fifth. So it's not fair to say it's only the Ducati. It's absolutely the combination. Alvaro is doing so good on this bike. And if you compare it with 2019, when he was the first time on the bike, he's not doing many mistakes. So he had four crashes in 33 races. I mean, super impressive. And Eva, one of the big things from that is it's been the feature-length races. So you're picking up big chunks of points on your rivals. Obviously, Top Rack's been very good in the Super Bowl races, but in the long races, we've been able to see that Alvaro has been the difference. And I find it interesting, like you said, that it is Alvaro that makes the difference, but he's also the rider that the whole way through his career, from whenever he was 14, he was earmarked as that special rider, whereas Rinaldi, Bassani, Ertl, the other riders on the Ducati that wasn't the case. Petrucci even, you know, obviously a Grand Prix winner, but all of those guys had to fight their way up to get to a top ride, whereas Bautista from the start of his career, everyone knew he had that talent, but now he's really able to show it. This is what makes Bautista on the Ducati that perfect combination. Mm, I remember the words from Gigi Delinia, the general manager from Ducati Corse, who said that for his talent, by far he did not win enough in his career. And um, I think this is true. On the other hand, uh, we saw in his two years with Honda that even a class rider like Bautista, if you don't have the package, you cannot win. And Alex, obviously, Evo's mentioned about the statistics and they're super impressive all the way through the season from Alvaro. Yeah, for me, when you ask the question of what's the difference been between Alvaro and the others, it's race wins, isn't it? Um, we've said the number already, 24 wins. Um but I don't think we give him the credit that he deserves for how dominant some of those wins have been. 14 wins by more than three seconds, you know, where he's taken the opposition apart. So on the day when he and the bike and the combination, as Gordo have already said, are at their absolute best, he doesn't just win. He doesn't barely win. You know, he, he romps away and into the distance. And it's those wins that ultimately um, will will give him this second world title. The other thing that I think is important to mention compared to the others is how he hit the ground running at the start of the season. Um, day one, first round, first few rounds. You know, the championship in points terms, Top Rack was 56 points behind after Assen. He's only 60 points down now. So a lot of the damage was done in that series of wins from Bautista. First five rounds of the season, just one defeat for the fall in Indonesia. Yeah, and that's one of the big things that has been so impressive from him because when you look at Top Rack, it's been the case of mistakes whether it's mechanical issues with the Pirelli obviously in Most. Top Rack's been super impressive Gordo but he's been held back by those couple of problems for him whereas Bautista because he's winning the races is still able to score those big chunks of points. Yeah I mean I think it would be very interesting if we take all the DNFs and, and problems out to see where we would be in the championship as well that's why we're going to the final round it has been quite close um, we see the amazing way that Top Rack can ride um, but that occasionally can have a cost. The most impressive thing is that he how seldom he falls off. But if you're on balance, it's still Batista season on merit. Although I would love to see Top Rack on that Ducati and see what they or Jonathan. I think all three of them in a Ducati would be, you know, with the races of the century every weekend if they were all on exactly the same bike with the same, you know, enough time to get used to it. Well, that's interesting, Gordo, because it does bring us to the big talking point going into this winter. 
the rider market changes. And Alex Gordo's mentioned there about it. It'd be interesting to see what those guys are like on Ducatis. Well, we're going to get to see what Top Rack's like on a BMW. We're going to get to see what Johnny's like on a Yamaha. We're going to see Ian One come back after a four-year doping ban. We're going to see Bassani jump on a Kawasaki. There's just changes everywhere for next year. Yeah, I'm particularly fascinated by the case study of Jonathan Ray. Um, you know, someone who's had 270 races with Kawasaki, with one manufacturer, nine seasons, but who over the last three years has seen the number of race victories tail off. You know, 13 wins in 2021, six wins in 2022, and now just one win this season, only one win. And um, we were chatting off the podcast earlier on. He had two wins just in his rookie season with with Honda. So uh, to my mind, how Ray responds to a new challenge, 15 years in the paddock and only two manufacturers is really fascinating. And particularly, we don't tend to see legends at this stage of their career make a big, bold decision. 36 years old, he is now 37 by the time we get to Phillip Island to make that massive change in the late stages of their career, I think is a, is a great story for Superbikes for next season. Yeah, and Evo, it must be one of the, the big hits all the way through this season on your website, just because it did take people by surprise. You were the first that actually put pen to paper on the Yamaha switch. For me, the, the biggest surprise of the season is still Top Rock leaving Yamaha, which opens the door for Jonathan. So without this brave decision, because he's going to BMW, there wouldn't be at least that chance for Jonathan. Um, for me, I can't see a massive difference between the Kawasaki and the Yamaha. So Jonathan, he thinks very simple. He thinks Toprak is in front of me. I am the better rider than Toprak. So if I am on his bike, I'm in front of him. So at least he's going from third to exactly second. Right. I couldn't agree more with that, actually. I think that's a perfect point. For, that's his thinking. It's purely for, logical. For Toprak, the risk is much bigger because he's going from a winning bike to the BMW and the BMW more or less won nothing since uh, 2019. And yet the opportunity is massive, isn't it? Because BMW haven't been a top three manufacturer since 2013. So to, for Top Rack to say, well, look, I'm a generational talent. Ducati, we know, is the top manufacturer. If he can do something with BMW that nobody else has been able to do in the last decade... How does that cement his legend status? That that would be uh, an incredible achievement from him. Yeah, I, I think that's the that's the part of the thinking. You have to remember that Toprak and uh, Keenan, his manager, don't think like the rest of everybody else. They just have a different mindset, different mentality, and every approach to almost every aspect of their life. They come from a, a country without any race in history at all until it was made by a very few people and led by Keenan. And look at how many Turkish riders we have now. Um, but look at the talent that Toprak has developed over those years. Look at the way he rides a bike he can't do. Maybe, purely because he's such a force of nature, he will get results for BMW that they're not expecting to have. And certainly everybody in BMW will have to take it double seriously from anything they've done before. They all work hard. They're not, not decrying any of them. But they're going to have to lift their game to match Toprak a lot. And that might be the reason why maybe top right will do some special stuff next year. I think it's one of the big things is that BMW have never been afraid to put resources into the programme, but putting them in the right places has always been the biggest issue. And Eva, when you look at the situation that top right's going to go into, if this was the same as when Reading signed for BMW or when Sykes signed for BMW, it would be a big worry, but he's able to bring his crew chief. There's been big changes in the BMW hierarchy as well. There's at least hope that BMW 
are seeing the light at the end of the tunnel now. People in BMW understand that it's not enough to just sign a top rider like Toprak. Because when Scott Redding went from Ducati to BMW, he was in the same situation. He was third and second in the World Championship. And a lot of people said, yeah, but he was coming from Ducati, from the best bike. Now Toprak is coming from the Yamaha, and not many people think that the Yamaha is the best bike in the paddock, but they see what Toprak is doing. So this means on the opposite that the pressure on BMW now is massive. And this is the reason why they do a lot of investment. Now they are working on a test team. Um, they restructured the whole teams. They will have two more or less equal factory teams next year. They have the support from the boss they have to support from the new boss who will be in charge from 1st of November, I think. So on paper, there is everything to be successful. So now they just need to do it. And I think it's going to be really important to see how everything meshes together. Scott goes to the Bonovo bike, him and Gerloff on that team. And then Vandermark and Toprak, we know they're going to work well together. They did that successfully at Yamaha. But there's four top riders on the BMW you could make a claim for that up until this year as well with Gerloff and Baz on the Bonovo bikes, but you do have now three proven race winners, title contenders as well, Vandermark third in the world in the past. So riders aren't the issue. BMW are putting in the money to bring in the engineers that riders want to work with as well. Bonovo brought in Les Pearson this year for Gerloff. Obviously, we don't know who Scott's crew chief is going to be yet, but on the factory team, They've got good crew chiefs now as well, Phil Marin, and then obviously Marcus is already there with Vandermark. So they've got all the engineering prowess they need, Gordo, and now it's up to them just to take the feedback, use it in a constructive way, and then make progress with that bike because what we've seen is the BMW's not that bad. Well, I've been saying for a while now, there's nothing on paper with that BMW that should stop it being a contender in this championship. It's as simple as that. The, the bike on the spec sheet, it's got a modern engine architecture, it's a traditional bike, so they're not trying to reinvent the wheel. Everything they're doing with it is known technology in the paddock, if not inside the, the halls of BMW. But ultimately, there is no excuse now. Literally no excuse. They've got the biggest pure riding talent in this championship about to come on their bike. They've got four factory bikes. They're, they're mo maybe more even four factory bikes than even Yamaha. Um, you know, the way they operate... And now they've added a test team and all the other things we've already touched on. They, they have to do it this year. And all they have to do is listen to the right people at the right time because the resources are there, have been for a while, obviously haven't quite been put in the right place at the right time. But there's nothing, there's no gaps in that bike. I don't think there's any big gaps in that bike. I mean, the biggest complaint from all the riders in the last couple of years was that the responsible people are not listening to them. So it's, as Gordon said, the problem is not the bike. The, the, the problem nowadays in World Superbikes, the bikes are all more or less on the same level, but you need to take the maximum out of it. And if there is more trust into the computer and into electronics, then in the rider's feeling, then you will not have success. Whatever the computer is telling you, if the balls from the rider are telling something different, then it's like this. And there'll be no hiding place for that now, will there? That's the point. You've said the, the three, even the fourth rider, Garrett Gerloff, the two of the last three rounds, he's been brilliant inside those top five positions. So 
with Toprak now on board, if they're still fourth in the Manufacturers' Championship in a year's time, then they've got really big problems. And that was actually one of the things I was going to ask you, Alex, because at the start of the season, before Van der Mark got injured, he was the top BMW rider. The whole way through winter testing, it was Van der Mark that was doing the longer runs. It was Van der Mark that seemed to be happier with the bike. And then once he got injured, someone else had to step up. It happened to be Reading and Assen, and then it became Baz for a couple of rounds, Gerloff for most of the season has been that top BMW rider. In the five years you've been here, we haven't really seen it where a manufacturer didn't have one specific lead rider. BMW this year, it's been so inconsistent for who's going to be that top guy. And as Evo's already said, the emphasis has very much from the manufacturer been on, we want two equal teams. We don't want people to feel like there is a divide. Now, uh, the whole conversation about Scott Redding proved that there is some kind of divide still, even if it's just inside the, rind the rider's mind. But as you say, it hasn't stopped Garrett Gerloff from being top BMW. You know, he's ahead of Scott Redding. I think he's 17 points in the championship, the, the gap between the two of them. So it's not massive. One weekend to another, one rider or the other uh, has been has been the best. But the last few rounds, it has been Garrett Gerloff quite consistently. And I think that only adds an extra dynamic to that battle before we go into next season. One of the most important aspects, probably the most important aspect in terms of the chassis of the bike is entering corners. And that, over a period of years has been the thing that every BMW rider has struggled with is braking and corner entry. Well, if you don't do braking and corner entry properly, you're not going to do apex, you're not going to do exit properly. So that's why it's a compound problem. They have been complaining, more or less, tried so many swing arms and, and linkages and things over the years that that's the big problem. End of the day, when you sign top rack, he is corner entry. So he might get results straight away because he's not worrying about all the... The, the back torque limiting and everything else. I know BMW have made progress with this, but that's one thing that is either going to be super stressed and, they, and they'll then find a solution to because they'll have new data that no one else is generating or it'll be taken out of the equation and then we'll see how good the rest of the bike is. But got it. Then, then we will say, I mean, for me, there are two point of views. The first one is Toprak is bringing this little bit which BMW is missing to have the success. The other one is what all the current BMW riders are saying to me, and this is you cannot ride a BMW with Toprak style. If the, if the rear wheel is lifting, then you are lost on corner entry. So we will see. The one thing about that is nobody said you could ride a Yamaha like Toprak either. So let's see how that fares yeah, out. Yeah, Yamaha was all corner entry, long corners, smooth. Top rack's the complete opposite of that. Still made it work. What's interesting with that is I remember when Top Rack signed for them in 2019, one of the big focuses for especially Andrew Pish was we've got to make sure that this bike stops better because there's no point being fast around the corner when you're trying to attack someone you're going to be attacked into the corner entry. You're having a break early. We need to make the bike more friendly on the front end. So that was a change that Yamaha had already made and then Toprak could take full advantage of it. But it does go to show you the change really in the ethos in superbikes over the last five, six years. It used to be the rider made the difference. To an extent, the crew chief facilitated that. But now, because we've got five manufacturers all so close, it's ended up where the crew chief has taken on more and more of a, of a role or a responsibility in that performance. Uh, I, I would agree with you there. I think it's been a lot of years since the rider just riding harder gets the final results. It's been quite a few years since you've had to get the bike to work in this championship. In the old days, you could literally just ride harder and win. I think the last world champion who simply just had to ride harder because of the limits on his bike and still managed to get the job done was Tosland. 
and he nearly never made it at the end because you know the way other riders were, the tech packages were better than his at the end of the season. So, but the crew chief thing is correct because it's now very. You have to get everything lined up every weekend all the time, or you'll finish tenth, which is also a competition thing. The level of comp- there's greater level of competition now. Gordo Tozlan, that's fifteen years ago. Happens to coincide with when Biaggi, Chaka, and all these guys came into the paddock as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I always say every time we get a tranche of GP riders into this paddock, um, those guys literally raise the level. Not the riding, they raise the level of preparation. What's the big advantage any MotoGP rider, whether they come from uh, what is now called Moto3, Moto2 or MotoGP, here is training. You've you've generally gone through a very, very stringent uh, selection process, which is somehow or other based on merit, generally. And you have to arrive to beat anybody in Moto2 or MotoGP or anything else. You have to beat all the other guys that have done nothing since they were five years old except try and be world champion. That's not quite the same in Superbike. It's much more organic. People come from different areas and so on. But when those riders like Biagi, like Cheka, for whom there were no small problems, there were only problems that they had to work out, that was the mentality they brought. And that mentality has continued in Superbike since those days. But we are now having to get to even more, uh, make sure the bike's perfect every weekend, a small problem. Well, if you're Jonathan Ray racing top right Rasgat Loyolo and racing Alvaro Batista, a small problem means you don't win the race. All those guys have got to have a bike that lasts or drops off at the same rate towards the end of the race. If they don't, whoever's left for the best package is going to win out of those three any weekend. That's where we are now, and that's why those three guys are, are higher in ability and level than everybody else. And that's the really interesting thing, because it's not only just that they will lose the race on the bad day or on the bad race. It's that they could tumble back to the latter part of the top 10. You, know, you only need to look at the two flyaways at the start of the season for, for Jonathan Ray, the eighth position in, in race two in Phillip Island to say, well, you might have expected that he might not win on his bad day, but you're not expecting him to be fighting tooth and nail for seventh, eighth, ninth positions. And that's one of the things that for next year becomes really interesting, Evil, because fair enough, there's no real expectation on Ian One to come in and hit the ground running, but he's a guy that Ducati had picked, handpicked to be their future GP superstar. We know the talent level he has. It's up to him to get himself up to speed, get ready. But the whole field is so strong. This year, me and Alex have said it so often on commentary, who's in 18th position? And it's a guy that's a world champion, a superbike race winner, whatever it is, they've got a great CV. And you throw into the mix someone like Ian One and some other riders, Sam Lowe's coming in, the championship is just healthier and healthier from a rider's perspective right now. So, as Alex says, on your off days, you could end up really losing a lot of points. I mean, there was in the last couple of weeks, there was a lot of discussion about uh, Ian One and what he's able to do. And to be very honest, I think top 10 will be really, really difficult for him, especially in the first half of the season. And there was also a lot of discussion why is there so much interest in Ian One? because he was four years away from racing. So, and I mean, we know him, he's, he's a character. Um, he's a very special person. There is a lot of, he's bringing some glamour with a girlfriend. He had some great results in the past. He won only one MotoGP race, yeah, I think. Yeah, in Austria, 16. First one for Ducati since 10 years or something. Um, so I think it's more the, 
it's more the story about him than the writer, the writer himself, because I don't think that we need a writer like Andrea Iannone in World Superbike from a writer's point of view. From a character point of view, he's very, very welcome. And from a superbike perspective, I thought Marco Melandri's comments were quite interesting because obviously he's a rider who had a little bit of time out, nothing like four years, but he said he's going to find it really, really tough to come in after such a long layoff. Yeah, I think that's the. There is a point whereby any rider just can't get back to the speed they were at. You know, they they don't lose their quality, they don't lose their pace. But look at someone like Bayless. You know, he came back thinking we all thought he might do a little bit better than he did over the races and t it took him two rounds to go, you know, this is too much for me. Now, he was much older and everything else, but he was Troy Bayless. But part of the problem for that as well was in Phillip Island, he was okay because Phillip Island, you have a two-day test, you have a racetrack yeah. that is dominated by not being at the limit. That's where, for me, Ian O'Neill could go to the first round and if he's able to keep himself in the pack, I'm not going to be surprised. If he keeps himself in the pack when we go to Catalonia, Assen and all those then I'd be surprised. But yeah, I'd be with you, Eva. I think if he's in the top 10, it's remarkable. But also for that team, how often have we seen them up there with Philip Ertl this year? So, But it also, it's racing. And if he has done everything he needs to do to be ready and he finds himself in the right position, why not? We can expect... You know, who thought Loris Baz was going to come back from AMA and finish on, what, two or three podiums at the end of that season when he came back? Nobody thought that was going to happen. We all know how good he is. So you never know. You never know. I will say one thing as well. Ian One is easily the most difficult rider I've ever had to interview on a daily basis. So you never had to interview Max Biaggi then? Uh, no, because at least with, with Max, he would have he would remember you and he'd know what your job is. With Ian One, for the whole way through 2014 and 2015, I had to introduce myself to him every day you'd talk to him. And uh, I think the only rider that I could put on a par with him for difficulty is Davide Giuliano. And that was just because... Giuliano just did not want to talk to the media. But Ian Ona, it's going to be interesting to see how he fares now when he comes to Superbikes. I'm being unfair on Max, because when you did get Max, and when Max wanted to get your attention, it was the best interview you'd have all year. you know. And Max did remember who everybody is. That's his, his little computer brain doesn't know how to stop. That's one of the things I always find interesting. Whenever you interview, Mark Marquez is a good example of it. I've sat down after finishing an interview with Mark thinking, oh my God, I've got gold. And then you go through the transcript and there's nothing there. He's just managed to, like Evo would, just charm you. And, uh, you know, some riders have it, some riders don't. Superbikes is a good place, though. And Evo, you've obviously worked in MotoGP as well. But Superbikes is a good place to be able to see the true character of the rider. They let their guard down. They know no one's here to stab them in the back. And people do tend to be a little bit more relaxed once they come here. Yeah, and it's much, much less political, let's say, Normally, the writers are talking quite honest and open and they they say what they think. And there are not five PR guys behind them who say, ah, oh, you cannot say this and that and blah, blah, blah. Or, you know, a guy like you and me, we walk into the garage and we get the story. This is something which is impossible in these days in MotoGP. Yeah, and that is one of the big things I found really interesting when I came here from GP. And luckily, it's still more or less stay that way in Superbikes. I agree with you. They're trying to rein us all in. They're trying to get us to do uh, everything via the PR book and everything else. I can safely say to everybody, everybody's got their own approach to these things, but Evo and I have sat there many a time hunched over a computer saying, I'm not having it. If I see a human being in front of me that I need to speak to, I'm just going to speak to them. And funny enough, in this paddock, nine out of ten of them do it. 
Then we go to the PR person and say, well, by the way, I just met such and such today and they said so-and-so. And that's, that's the way I'm going to work. I don't, I'm not going to be reined in. I know Evo is definitely not going to be reined in. You know, I, I'm quite happy to go through the PR person and arrange interviews. I don't want to spoil anybody's weekend. But we're here to find out things and the only way you can do that is speaking to people. And we are still, partly through pig-headedness, able to do that here. To be very fair, um, since since Honda arrived here with the factory team in 2020, I'm not allowed to go to the garage. And this is not because I wasn't charming. It's simply because HRC is not allowing it to but me. But that's an HRC thing. They did it in GPs. They do it here. They just don't like you in the garage. Even though this is production racing, I don't understand it myself. In the old days, they like you in the garage. They let you walk around the bike and look at every part of it because this is production racing. And that bike is probably more production than that V-twin that they won two World Championships with ever was. I went to a test in the winter at Phillip Island, as we always did an end of January test. The first time that thing was in public display, as it were, even just to the journalists and the media that were there. And the, the, the large project leader walked me around the bike and told me what it was and even got his little Scion, that's how long ago we're talking here, his little Scion personal assistant thing to translate the word at rust, corrosion. The coating was for anti-corrosion. That was a level of detail. Nowadays, they don't they don't want you near the bike. I don't I don't understand it because these bikes have never been more productionized. I don't understand it. Evil. My ex, I I said to the to the Honda guys that I fully understand them because it's so super special what they are doing and it's such a super good bike. Um, and they listened to me and I think on a certain point they realized that I am a little bit of sarcastic. Um, and they haven't been so happy about this, but I mean, you know me, I don't care. Yeah, he's such a charming man. In the good old days when people had money and you could actually go to Australia for a test, we used to fly to Australia in January on our own, as freelancers, and, and, and then go back in February again, because everybody did a big all-out test in Australia or Malaysia or the way back, whatever. Now we're not, A, not allowed to, you're outside your centre, as it were, European-based teams can only test in Europe in the winter, etc. Um, but it was a slight, it was slightly different then. People don't want you in the garage and those about as much now. And I think that's just another thing we've learned. Not a great lesson, I don't think, but we've learned from MotoGP, you know. It's one of those things, Gordy, you mentioned there about the big tests. Now we have it where, and Alex, this week, this week after the race, we're going to have it where we test here in Hareth. Johnny's going to jump onto the Yamaha. We're going to see some rider making their changes. Top Rack isn't going to be on the BMW. This is obviously one of the big bones of contention for Top Rack and big talking point in the paddock. But our testing now is literally the season finishes, next year starts, and then everyone's already almost shifted their focus to next year on this weekend. A lot of teams using this, a little bit of let's try something new, let's just get ourselves ready for the new season. Let's not forget that this weekend's taking place two weeks later than it was planned to as well uh, with the uh, cancellation of the visit to San Juan. So we're finishing a little bit later than we would have anticipated and February comes around very quickly. And and also we're, we're still in Europe. There hasn't been a load of stuff gone flown out to Argentina and back again. So that doubles up exactly what Alex was saying. It's not, it's not just a, a time thing, it's a continent thing. We haven't had to fly everything away and then fly it all back again. Nobody's exhausted. We're just in Europe. We've had a, a, a more of a break and even more time in the workshops. And don't forget, we don't only have the new riders on different bikes. We also have the new rules. And um, we have the first time we have a minimum weight for a rider. Um, 
So, for example, for Bautista, it will be important, even if there is, even if there are no news on his bike, it will be important for him to see how it will be with five, six, seven kilos extra on the machine. And this is one of the big things, Evo, because at the Hareth test, so Tuesday, Wednesday, after the round, there will be the test, but the teams won't use a full 2024 spec bike, but they might be able to use this test with things like the ballast to be able to understand where to place the ballast, how it's going to affect the bike as well. So this test becomes important for that rather than just flat out saying this is going to be our bike for next year. Yeah, but I think I think both. For example, BMW, I'm pretty sure that they will use a lot of new parts. Or Kawasaki, if you think a little bit uh, backwards, um, even in the summer they tested parts for 24. So I think we will see a lot of new stuff next week on track, but probably they will not tell us. And remember, there's lots of limitations. You can't just say, oh, this doesn't work, we'll make a new one, only if you're allowed to. You have to qualify for these things. There will be new models, with, with, with uh, new things that can bring the engine inertia, etc. So there could be quite big changes by even changing one part. might make a big difference to you, the revs and everything else. One of the comments that was tucked away in the announcement as well about the uh, changes to the regulations, the timing of it, they've done this expecting or, or receiving pressure from the teams to have announced it and to have decided what exactly that looks like to as great an extent as possible before the test. So the teams certainly want to use it to get an idea of roughly what next year is going to look like. Just out of curiosity, of all the new rules, Gordo, which one are you most excited about? Um, but I think the crank lightening or or making more heavy, that's a big change from a couple of 3% to 20 You know, that's a big deal because that that affects all sorts of things like how you stress the engine at maximum revs and so on. I'm interested for that one specifically, top rack jumped onto the BMW. The BMW is the most physical bike on the grid. Is this going to make a big impact on that for the for the package? Well, it depends what they want to do. And, and I haven't had a chance to speak to any of the people inside the teams to see what they're going to do with this 20% uh, change. But some people would want to maybe make their cranks heavier. Those people that have got more modern engines that are more difficult to... The way you tame an engine is to... You can do lots of things, give it more torque and take stuff off the top. But maybe you want to make the crank a bit heavier so it's a bit slower in reacting because that's maybe what you want. You maybe want to let the electronics help you when you go into the corner, even if you've got a heavier crank. If you've got an engine that spins up and down too quick, if you're allowed to change the crank weight, then you can make the difference to that. That's my read of the rules anyway. More than one BMW rider said to me in the last five years that they think that the main problem of the of the tire use is that the crank is too light. So if they would have a heavier one, it would be better. Um, Tom Sykes, he was loving the very, very light ones. And uh, when it was forbidden to make it lighter, he struggled more and more and more. So I think if you give this freedom to the manufacturers, then it will be for, at least for some riders, or even for the whole manufacturer, it could be quite a nice profit. Evo, you mentioned about the weight limit, the combined limit for bike and rider. This is something that riders have been calling for a long time, teams and engineers. It's been countless news stories. I think this change will change nothing. Absolutely nothing. For one simple reason. First, in reality, it's not a combined weight. We have a minimum weight for a motorcycle. 
and we have a minimum weight for a rider which will be 80 kilograms and even the lightest rider needs to add around six or seven k so this means if alvaro bautista will have a lot of pizza and a lot of practice uh, during the winter he will add another 2.5 kilo to his body so he needs to add another four or five kilo to his motorcycle i can't see a change and all the riders which are over 80 kilograms for them is no change so in reality the only difference will be between the lightest and the heaviest rider and then we are talking about four kilograms on the bike from bautista but i think there's a psychological game being played with it as well because there are right well there's a whole sliding scale and spectrum of opinions from one side which is look we're athletes and we've got the body type that we've got and we should just be allowed to race as we are to right the other side where the heaviest rider who's 30 kilograms heavier than the lightest is saying, well, I want him to be weighted up to me. We found a point with the ratio system and so on where, as you say, I don't think anyone expects that the whole championship order is going to be turned on its head by any means. But it's a conceptual thing where you've made a change that some riders are asking for. Are those riders going to feel a little bit more confident now? At very least, they will feel it's a step to answering their concerns. It doesn't have to make a big change, but when you look at Portimao Race 2, it was one of the most exciting races we've had in a long time, but it also wasn't really a race because we knew exactly what was going to happen. Alex, you called it after two or three laps. Top Rack's going to have to do this another 17 times to hold on to the race win. And all the time when we came to the start-finish line, Bautista was either ahead or just about to go ahead. Maybe with the weight change, he's that little bit further back. And it's where the bike is a little bit more difficult to ride for the rest of the lap. And he loses some of that advantage. And then you have a slightly slightly changed race as a result. Now, I think, like you said, Alex, no one expects where this is suddenly going to mean that the Ducati and Bautista isn't competitive. Because that should never be the, the goal of a rule change. But, Gordo, you've been around long enough to see countless attempts to try and curb someone that's competitive we saw it where the race winner had to start from the fourth row of the grid we've seen it where we've added extra races you look at bsb and the regs that make sure that the showdown always brings it to the last race of the season this isn't anything new in racing but it is a change for us where we are going after the technical rules rather than trying to just change the sporting rules more uh yeah i mean the rules are very balanced if it wasn't for alvaro and that's the bottom line um if, you know that if anybody's Everybody thinks these rules have been brought in only to control Alvaro. These rules have been brought in for lots of things. And obviously, to stop one guy running away with the championship, um, which is no good for anybody. It's actually no good for Ducati. It's, no, you know, it's, just, it's not great. They want to win like Portimao. They want to win in the last corner. Um, so the, the, the technical rules have been brought to a fine peak in this championship. We've done it many different ways over the years, allowing people that don't have... Uh, like um, electronic throttle bodies to have them when the road bike didn't have them at all. We've even now got to the stage, and I think we, I think you're not quite right about the, the technical side. We allowed Honda and BMW to make chassis changes, which made the chassis less stiff. That has never happened in this championship before. People have cheated and done it, and we'll find out about it afterwards. But ultimately, the rules have never allowed the chassis to be weakened. And this end of last year and this year, the chassis were allowed to be weakened. You know that's a, that's a pretty big technical intervention, 
And Honda, you had to use all the super concession points to do that again, again this year. They had the chance to do it last year, and they had to do it again this year. So, I think there's been a lot of technical changes. These ones are designed for future proofing. I'll move on to that later, maybe if we get a chance. But the all these rules are designed to future proof this championship to allow the people that are still here with an older bike to continue to race and allow, very importantly, anybody else who might decide that they're going to go and have a run at this superbike thing to be able to bring a bike that they can make competitive using any one of those five plus all the other rules that we've already got. Evo? I mean, in the end, we're talking about sport. And in sport, we think everything needs to be equal, and fair and so on. But in reality, we are talking about a show business. And for the promoter, it's super important that we have exciting races. And if a manufacturer is winning all the races, it's not good for the manufacturer because it looks too easy. If a manufacturer is all the time behind, it's not good for him because at one day he would say, okay, I leave the championship. And as, as the boss, the, the superbike boss, Greg Lavilla said, if the first one or the last one is leaving, then all the rest will think about. So this is the worrying of the, of, of Dorna. And Gordo, this is what comes back to what you were talking about for future proofing. Yeah, the, the all these, I can guarantee that there is one manufacturer behind each of those rules. That's the thing that they see that they need that need to continue or whatever. What Evo's touched on it perfectly is that Gregorio and all the technical people in the championship are looking at it to say. Well, we want to expand this franchise to, to other people if they want to come, whether they will or whether they won't. But at least you're going to allow it. Look at Next Generation. Everybody thought, well, the guy's going to disappear. Last year it didn't because the balancing rules are a certain way. Because they changed them a bit this year, the Ducati's been the dominant bike. But again, only in the hands of one rider. So again, you've got to factor in the rider, the team, the backup, the electronics, the engineers back in Borna Panigale and all that into that. But the Ducati's been a winning bike this year, not just for him. So you, you, the rules are so important, but they have to be not the same for everybody, but they have to allow people to be competitive. And I guarantee that we see all those rules. One of those rules is, for example, Ducati's pet one, that the, the balancing rules haven't gone too heavy with the weights. You know, it hasn't been too much of a change. They all said, we don't want, we can't put 20 kilos on the bike and so on. Um, that, that to me is what's done. And the future proofing, is the fuel thing for 25. And you also have it then as well where Ducati were able to get back their revs. And it's such a difficult balance to strike, isn't it? Because, uh, yes, it's show business, but it's also a sport. And all of the riders out there think that, you know, they, they need to be proving their sporting prowess. But equally, it is a motor sport. And if you're looking at it as Ducati, you're saying, well, we've brought two new models since some of these manufacturers brought their last one. We're putting in the investment. We're putting in the, the technical innovations only to then see our bikes be ultimately the, the biggest victim when there are rule changes. So clearly they're going to be the, feel, the ones that feel most hard done by when there are changes while they are on top. In the first year of this championship, which was designed to be modified road bikes, Honda produced the RC30. Ducati produced the 851. Yamaha were very quickly on with an OWO one. And they even made a special FZR 750R in the meantime. Eventually, everybody had a GSX RRRRR, a Kawasaki ZX7RRRR. Honda, the, the, the amount of S's and P's at the end of that bike just blow my mind. You know, they just keep adding an S and an R and a P at the, at the end of everything. Um, people have always made super special bikes for this championship. 
right now that because of the bikes are made, not all of those bikes are actually competing. Look at, do you think that BMW would have the wing size they've got on the M if it wasn't for the fact that they they, they had a specific problem in racing that they needed to try to fix with aerodynamic changes? I, you know, it's partly styling for the street, and people go, "Ooh, look at the wings and all that." But it's also they had specific problems that they created that wing to to try and fix. Whether they did or not is is another matter, but that's what they did. I hear a lot of people saying or complaining that this is now is an anti-Bautista, anti-Ducati rule. And they are asking, yeah, why was there no penalization on when Jonathan Ray won six titles in a row? And I said, well, there was a big penalization because he won his last title in 2020 and they introduced the, the balance rule in 2018. So even in the first three years of the balance rule, he won the world championship. And I can't see a reason why Bautista should not win next year. I think it's one of those things that for me we saw Kawasaki was the dominant bike for a long time Tom Sykes should have won three championships Johnny won six so for the best part of 10 years that was the bike package team to be on obviously Bautista should have won in 19 you know things things can happen one way or the other but that bike was so good that we had to change the sporting rules we made sure that Johnny started on the fourth row of the grid we made sure that lots of changes were made and like you said Evo there was balancing back then as well it wasn't quite like what we're doing for next year, but it was a very significant shift to try and bring everyone back. And that was where, again, it was only for one rider that was dominant for each of those seasons, whether you look at Tom against his teammates like Loris or Johnny even against Tom. I think there's an important philosophy decision that is being taken or needs to be taken as well. How equal do you want all of your manufacturers? Now, ultimately, if it gets to the point where you can ride on any bike and the result is more or less the same, the spectator at home is going to be absolutely delighted with that because you're going to have everyone equal out on track. But at the same time, your manufacturers are saying, well, we're kind of here partly as a marketing exercise to show that our bike is the best one. So if we can't do that, that's not going to work for them either. So it really is a tightrope. And that's where a lot of the regulation changes are looking to try and find the, the perfect balance between the manufacturers, the different riders as well. The big thing that I think a lot of people outside this championship don't understand is that you are actually starting with a production device. like Just like racing an iPhone versus an Android phone versus a Samsung versus a, These are commercial products in the marketplace. Now, okay, they're not selling bazillions of them. Ducati sell every bike they make, apparently. But this is a limitation on this championship. You can't just say, okay, well, I need to have that. Because it's a it's a production bike that has got... No, it's not just a branding exercise. It's literally a flagship model exercise. It's one of those things, Gordon. You always say the bikes that we see in World Superbikes have to deal with freezing temperatures, 50-degree heat. They have to deal with a smooth road. They have to deal with back roads of Scotland. They have to deal with everything that's thrown at them. And that's what makes it pretty special that they're as fast as they are. BMW always said to me the reason the bike is made of the materials it's made and it's not more exotic is because ultimately it's got to survive somebody not quite getting their bike up the pavement when they try and mount a pavement. If you do a racing chassis, you'll bend that chassis with that little force. You have to make the thing capable, dope-proof. You have to make it Homer Simpson-proof as a product or else you'll end up with product recalls all the time. But that is basically what you then have to start your racing program from start your racing program from not finish it from that's why they're allowed to make modifications obviously enough one of the other big rule changes Gordo mentioned about the fuel flow regulators for 2025 
But Alex, we'll have three kilos less fuel next year as well for the, the riders and teams to have to deal with. That's a big shift as well, moving from 24 litres down to 21. It's the direction of travel that we need to be following, isn't it? Um, we all like our bikes how they are. We enjoy racing how we do. We enjoy the noise and so on. But there is a level of recognition within all motorsports, I think, that the direction of travel needs to be to be able to demonstrate that this is a proving ground for more sustainability. So, yeah, it's a, it's a first step in, in that direction. But what will also be interesting is to see over the two years or, or even further into the future what that does in terms of racing strategies or teams and, and how they set up their bikes. So I think that's an element that will be interesting to see how that plays out. I think if we didn't have the reduction in the fuel and Ducati as I understand, we'll be able to go back to the revs they had. That would be a bit of a worry. The fact that you can't, you literally will have a limit on how, how high your revs will be all the time because then you will end up in the territory of running out of petrol. That's a bad way to lose races. No one likes to do that. So they're going to have to reduce something somewhere to get through a full race, the, the 23 race and an intense track. Just for the fuel as well, Gordo, we're going to change the fuel type next year as well. So we're going to move away from what we have this year to 40% ethanol fuel as well. So this is a shift again yeah, for yeah. road bike engines to have to deal with the same fuel that's used in MotoGP, I think, as E40 as well. So you're having to adapt to this as well. That's going to be a challenge too. Yeah, and that is part of the reason why engineers like to go racing because it's a good way of proving. They can do it all in their labs and that's all very well, but when you you know when you look at someone else's doing something you can't do, then you have to put more work in. Say, well, we're doing this wrong, we have to do that. Um, but yeah, there, there will be changes. But, but it's racing. There's always going to be changes. One day we might not be racing 1,000cc bikes because the governments of the world is going to say, enough, guys. Sorry, too much. But this is where we can say, well, look, in motorsport, we are doing things that make progress, that then allow us to make progress on the road, and that filters out over however many million people, and, and that's why it's vital that we're doing it here. That's where it's actually important. What we've seen Tankata do in recent years, they had recycled materials for fairings, they had recycled oil in the bikes as well. They've done a lot to try and show you can do some things sustainable in racing as well, so that's that's always important. And that's when they were the only one doing it and there was no obvious disadvantage to them. When everyone is doing it, then uh, ultimately you're not feeling like, mm, well, I'm, I'm taking a risk because everyone else is playing with those same rules. And if everybody has to do it, knowledge is cumulative. So someone makes a breakthrough, everybody will find a way of copying that or people will defect and take the secrets with them. Knowledge becomes cumulative. And it's also, this now is a way where it's a profit for a manufacturer because it's something for the future. When you look at all the developments they did in MotoGP in the last couple of years, there is zero relevance for normal bikes. If you have special wings or all these ride height devices and all that other bullshit nobody needs and nobody would like to see, we don't need this. But if you go in the direction we are going now, there will be a big profit for the future evo's point is exactly correct we don't it's not relevant to road bike the knowledge that is accrued through doing that will be and some maybe less drastic uh, solution for road bikes but the, the more they find out about aerodynamics the more they'll be able to make a normal looking bike work a bit better so it's kind of like the space program you know is it a waste of money well it invented so many other things and other technologies that every other 
technical business in the world could then go, oh, right, they've solved that problem, we'll do this. So, yes, they're not, but, it, but the, the word you used is correct, is relevant. At this moment in time, it's not relevant to the, the products they sell, everything else. MotoGP is a different thing. It's a sport on its own like Formula 1. Now, they've achieved what they, they wanted to do, and it's become motorcycle F1. But it's irrelevant to the road, except for all those background lessons engineers learn. Yeah, and uh, one of the other things that came out this week, the new calendar for next year, we've got two new tracks. We've got places where MotoGP can't go. Cremona's added in Italy. Obviously, Most will be back again. So these are places that are very unique for superbikes. But Alex, with the new calendar out, it's always a it's always an interesting time of year. Everyone looks at it and says, oh, this is when I can go on my summer holidays. This is when, you know, as a fan, this is when you think this is the race I can go to. This is my home round. And and it's a rebalance of the calendar, isn't it, in many respects? Uh, because this year or this coming year's calendar looks very different to what we've become used to in recent years, you know, barring COVID seasons and so on. Um, because there's no August summer break. There's no massive long stretch with no races right when you're building up to a climax. So actually... We will build up with successive rounds, you know, a couple in August, a couple in September, and then hopefully we'll we'll have a championship decider in October, but we'll have some momentum on our side as opposed to having just taken a, a six-week break. Exactly right. That's a big change. The Italians were always very fond of our long break in August. Uh, we've carried that on except for COVID when we just crammed everything into three months, more or less, didn't we? Um, I think the the biggest problem, and this is this was long before Donna took over this championship. The biggest problem that World Superbike has is to have a cogent, sensible, affordable calendar, and that was in the days when there was more money around. The tracks had more money to get sponsorship and pay to the the fees they have to pay to Donna, etc. Our biggest problem every year, and this predates Donna. This is not a Donna problem is putting a sensible calendar together, getting all the obvious countries that should be having superbike races to want to have them, to have the means to pay for them, to have the facility that's willing to do it, to have the safety standards and everything else. And we will eventually, one day, if not today, get back to why a lot of the changes or the fuel thing is all based on that. We're going to have to change our expectations of the kinds of tracks that we're going to because we have to get them to partly pay for this championship. That's part of the way this championship runs. So people are willing to pay. We're going to have to reduce the performance of the bikes in the future to be able to go to these tracks. Simple as that. And viewers and those who have been commenting about the calendar already have got to remember that we're a 12 or 13 round championship. So there's always going to be a gap in the calendar sometime. If you lose your August break, then you end up with a break somewhere else. Um, that's May this time around. So, you know, there's going to be a gap earlier on in the season that allows us to build that momentum later on in the year. But when you're when you're working to a 12 or 13 round calendar, it's inevitable that either you have big gaps between each round or you have a little bit more momentum, but then you need a bigger break somewhere else. So I think that's just the reality of the number of rounds that we have per season. The only big complaint I'm hearing in the in the Harris paddock is that in the end, we have a Superbike World Championship but we have only one overseas round. And the problem of the overseas rounds is it's super expensive. It's very expensive for Dona because they need to pay a lot of money for cargo. Also expensive for the teams because they need to pay the flights and so on. Um, and additionally, why are we not racing in Southeast, Southeast Asia? Um, it's quite simple. If a ticket costs let's say 10 euros, which is a lot of money for a guy who's living on the Lombok Island, and you have 100,000 spectators, you're earning 1 million euro, which is by far not enough 
to cover this event. So what are you doing? You ask for 20 or 30 euro, and we have already only, let's say, 20 or 30,000 spectators. So in the end, as long as not as the government isn't paying, or a big sponsor like Pertamina, for example, in, in MotoGP, um, it's just not worth for Donna. This is a massive problem. And that's the reality in the world that we live in, isn't it? Because to put on an event is much more expensive than it was to put on an event 10 years ago, much more expensive than it was 10 years before that. We all know what the situation is with the cost of living and so on, but now extrapolate that out with freight, uh, the number of people that have to travel overseas for, for a flyaway round. That's the economic reality, and it's not just this championship, it's across the board. People want to have the races, but they can't afford to have them. They, If they have a MotoGP race, that's enough. The, this is the other difficulty. We've got a 20-odd round championship in our world, which is quite directly, and I wouldn't say competition, obviously, MotoGP is MotoGP. It's much higher up, much further away. But we are then fighting over what's left. And, other, and tracks that want to have us maybe aren't safe enough to have us. And tracks haven't got the facilities now. I never imagined we would go to Most. But every year, Most is a little bit better. And it's a brilliant track. There's a couple of places that desperately need some safety improvements. And that has to be done. For me, that's priority number one. However, how many great races have we had in Rost? It's fantastic. It's in Central Europe. Why we don't have a race in Germany? The biggest, most powerful country in Europe. 85 million people. 110 million German speakers in Europe. We don't have a race in Germany. Why are we not in America? Why are we not in South Africa? Why are we not in South America? I think it's one of the interesting ones is that for America, Laguna are obviously quite keen to get back to host a world championship race. They've been able to repave the circuit. They've spent a lot of money. That's definitely going to be one of those places that in the future will want to be contemplating it, mainly because a little bit the inverse of what happens when MotoGP comes to town we always did a Moto America World Superbikes double bill where Moto America had equal footing, really. They were in their own garages they were in, or in their own stalls. Everything was set up for them. They weren't competing with World Superbikes. They were just there to have their own event. They had their own TV deal and everything was still there as present. Moto GP came to Dakota and they were out on track at 8 o'clock in the morning. You feel like a second-class citizen. So that's something that's a big thing that is a draw to get back to America. Germany's the big one, though, Evo. This is the one that surprised me when the calendar came out. I was really expecting we were going to be going back there. Yeah, even even I was surprised. Um, I know that the negotiations between Dorna and the Hockenheim ring um, have been quite far. To be honest, I don't know why they can't find an agreement in the end. I think simply for financial reasons or maybe Hockenheim did not accept the changes they would like to have in one corner, I think, with the runoff area. But I don't know. I don't know. I need to check. You can read it on Speedweek in a couple of days. I think that, to, to finish off the point I was making earlier about why we're not here, why we're not there, because one thing, and it might only be one thing, stops it. It's just not possible to be. Um, and you have to go with the people that can do it. One thing that you're looking forward to next year, Alex? I've said it already, but I'm fascinated to see what Jonathan Ray's going to be able to do. I know Gordo said that he, uh, I think, said that there wasn't maybe as much of a difference as, as Jonathan Ray might hope between the Yamaha and the Kawasaki. But purely on points terms, if we think that 
Toprak and Jonathan are the most talented or among the most talented riders that we've got on the grid. There shouldn't be 156 points between them on the championship. Ray's going to make much more of an impression next year, and I'm looking forward to that. Evil, one thing you're looking forward to next year. Toprak on the BMW. Uh, goes without saying. Gordo. Uh, I mean, that's what Evil said is the thing that I would say. However, and I do say this quite a lot, but it's true. I'm looking forward to going to racetracks I've never been to before. We're going to Hungary. We're going to Cremona. Fine. You know, let, let's see. I never went to Moss before we went for World Superbike. Um, there are a few race, racetracks in this world I haven't been to, despite being a thousand years old. Um, I've never been to Spa. I've made this confession before. I do feel I should be making this in the confessional, even though I'm not Catholic. But I've never been to Spa, which is some, it's a terrible thing. I mean, it really is a terrible thing to admit, but it's true. So hopefully one day, we might go to Spa, or I might go to an endurance race as well. It's always one of those things, Gordo. The, it, the Catholic Church is very hard to leave, very easy to get into. So we can easily turn you into a Catholic to make that confession. No, you're all right. No, I'm fine. Fine away. Looking forward to Hungary, though, I have to say. It's one that had been rumoured for quite a long time um, and a venue that you go online and you have a quick look. <laughs> Inevitably, there's an, about 10 that are also mentioned that we don't go to and you've you've looked through all your browser histories full of maps around the world and what would flights look like and, and how about the local hotels and what's it like. But that one, that one's definitely one I'm looking forward to as well. Tell you what, that's also a positive one that Alex is able to look through his browser history without blushing. But uh, for all of us, I'm excited just to get ready for next year. I'm looking forward to coming back here to Hareth for the November test, seeing the changes, seeing new riders on new bikes. We've got new teams coming in. It's great for the championship to see a team like Mark VDS come in, a Moto2 World Championship team that views it that here is a place where they can really make an impact. That's positive for the championship. We've got new tracks next year, new regs. Phillip Island can't come soon enough. People might be looking at the calendar thinking, what? what? Where? They might be They might be thinking this. But next year is going to be fantastic. But, you know, and I'm not, I'm not saying that as cheerleading. I'm looking at it in a cold light of day thinking so much is going to change next year. Whatever's happening, even if, if Batista still wins the championship again, there's going to be so much stuff next year. That's going to be new and different, and 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 because you don't know what's going to happen with it, you will be sitting watching it at home. Even if you you only do it once, you'll be trying to find out what Sam Lowe's is like on a, on in World Superbike. And this is the thing, isn't it? Because a lot of people will be watching at home all the way through the season. Uh, an average person is going to go to one, maybe two of their most local tracks during the season. If they're watching the Superbike World Championship, maybe you're in Spain. You might you might get to watch. You might get to watch all three that take place in Spain, but most people are going to be watching at home. And regardless of the track facilities or exactly where it's located or whatever, when you've got the kind of field that we're going to have next year, not just of riders, but also of teams, as you've touched on already, Steve, there's going to be a lot to watch out for. And we've been lucky in recent years. We've had Bautista come over. We've had Petrucci come over, but more and more names every season. Loads of stories to look out for next year. Yeah, I'm excited for next year to start. Obviously, Al, we'll be together again next year, but uh, it's been great to have you on the pod. Nice to get new voices on the Paddock Pass podcast for Super Rides. Thank you very much for having me. Evo, speedweek.com, the only place to go. This is, I'm going to make a confession on the podcast, Evo. This is the most important website for me because it's got Supersport 300 news. It covers everything and uh, you do a great job. So thanks again for joining us on the pod. It's been great to have you on. Yeah, I wouldn't go so far as you, but... Um... No, thanks for the invitation. I hope for another one. 
It'll depend on what the invoice comes in from you for your day rate, but I don't know. That one was for free. Evo Evo Schwabian, right? People don't understand this. These are even meaner than Scottish people. So that's going to be an invoice, mate. Believe you me. Evo has just said the first one is free, so he's just like a drug dealer. <laughs> no, no, that that that's what he said. Wait till you see what you get in your inbox in the next couple of days. Well, Gordo, obviously, we've always had you on the Paddock Pass podcast for Superbikes, but it's been another great season, and uh, thanks for being on this one again. Mate, absolutely love it, every time. As ever, a big thank you to Renthal Street for supporting the Paddock Pass podcast. Check out renthal.com, and anyone looking to support the Paddock Pass podcast can check out patreon.com forward slash podcast. You can become a Paddock Insider and get our Paddock Notes shows for €10 a month. Every day of a Grand Prix weekend, you're able to get all the latest news, so be sure to check that out. Mm -hmm.